you would, take your Bibles and open to Joshua, Joshua chapter 13. With the movement into chapter 13, we are fully into the third major part of the book of Joshua through our, our study through the book of Joshua. So I'm going to give you the, the overall view, remind you where we've been, uh, so that if, you've been, if you're new with us, maybe it won't be such a jump to see where we're at. Um, the first four chapters, chapter 1 through 4, we saw Israel move into the promised land under Joshua's leadership. They entered into the land. Chapters 5 through 12, we saw them take the land as they entered into military conquests and, and engaged the peoples that were living in the land. And then in chapters 13 through 21, we are seeing them possess the land. We see the different portions of the land allotted to the different tribes and clans, and we see them living in the land. So I'm not going to lie to you, though, um, even for the most committed uh, Bible stu- uh, students, the most uh, studious readers of the scriptures that we have in our congregation, Joshua 13 through 21 is probably the section where we'll begin to struggle and maybe do a little bit of head nod action going on, maybe crumble a little bit as we sit at our desk trying to read. Um, you may ask, well, Matt, are you calling God's word boring or unhelpful? Well, no. But for most people, watching a war movie is a bit more exciting than participating in a land survey, all right? Uh, For most people, um, chasing the Canaanites out of their hill country is far more engaging than uh, counting villages and tracing borders. And so that's where we're headed. Uh, And I know insomnia thrives on topography and geographical descriptions, right? And so if I see some of you guys head bobbing, I won't be too offended, but I want to call you into the text because I think our problem is that we're, we're so detached from uh, their culture, from their time, from uh, the Near Eastern uh, culture, and then as well, even just the Israelites and what they had at stake in gaining this land. We're, we're so far removed from it that we don't see the value, uh, the excitement that they would have had in it. And let me maybe help explain with an illustration my... Um, my father-in-law in 1979 bought a brand new single cab, short wheel base, Ford F-150, four wheel drive. He immediately put a, a lift kit on it and 40 inch mud tires. It was uh, his work truck, his hunting truck, his mud riding truck. And he dropped a 400 big block in it with Detroit lockers all the way around. And uh, this was, this was the, the truck that he drove to do everything. And it sort of had a reputation, that truck in South Louisiana, that if you got stuck, it's the truck you wanted to come pull you out because, as it was nicknamed, Big Red could not be stuck. And so he drove that truck for years and years until Jessica was born, and he needed a more reliable truck for his roofing business, and so reluctantly he, he sold the old pickup. Well, fast forward 19 years, Jessica and I start dating, and I immediately befriended her dad because we have so much in common, if you can't tell by the way I've even described him this morning. Um, and, and as we would go to dinner with them and get to visit with them, he would always tell me all sorts of stories about this truck, uh, you know, adventures that they had in it back in the 80s, hunting and mud riding and different things. And more than once in telling me some of these stories, he would get a bit emotional, a little misty-eyed when he would tell me about Big Red and some of the things they did. And uh, he told me one night at dinner, uh, he says, Brother Matt, that's what he calls me, Brother Matt. Uh, Brother Matt, I know life's not about stuff, material possessions, he says, but if you ever get something that's special like that to you, he says, try to find a way to keep it. You'll really appreciate it down the road one day. And that night I, I told Jess as we were leaving dinner with her parents, I said, we've got to find that old truck. 
We need to go and try to find that. It'd be in a junkyard somewhere. We'll try to trace down the owners and who bought it from him and this, that, and the other. And we're going to find that old truck. Well, to make a long story short, several months of searching, we found the old truck almost 20 years after he had sold it. It was abandoned in a field uh, beside some, behind someone's house and, and was really in rough shape. It was a bucket of rust, really. Uh, but we, we managed to, to get it for him. And on his birthday, she had him walk out on the front porch and uh, I rounded the corner with Big Red on a flatbed trailer. Uh, giving it to him as his birthday. And Manuel Plana cried like a baby that evening over a bucket of rust. Uh, He spent the next year uh, taking every nut and bolt off of it, completely restoring this truck, and now it's in in mint condition. It looks like a brand-new truck that just rolled off the showroom floor. And he mentioned, we we don't have this in writing, and we're not going to hold it to him if he changes his mind, but he at least mentioned that one day he wants Desmond to have Big Red. And so why would I tell you that story? Why would I spend so much time walking you through that story about an old truck? Well, I think it helps us maybe understand uh, texts like this that are important, even if when we, don't, when we first read them, we don't see the importance, right? Because one day, Desmond will be old enough to appreciate and love that old truck, right? He, he to this day, calls it Papa's monster truck. One day, he will bring some friends over, maybe even a girlfriend trying to impress her, and show them this old truck, and they'll probably look at it and go, what is all the fuss about? This old truck, this old bucket of rust, it's, it's just an old truck. It's not even fuel injected. It doesn't have heated seats. It doesn't have a GPS. It doesn't have a DVD player. Why is Desmond freaking out over this old trunk of metal? I mean, like, what's so big, what's so big about this truck? It's because it was his grandfather's. It, it's because the, it, it's an inheritance. It's a part of his grandfather's story and life for several decades. It's special because it's a fulfillment of a ton of work, blood, sweat, and tears that went into this thing. And one day it's going to mean a ton to Desmond. It's going to be incredibly important to him. And so we have to try to get there in the text of Joshua today. That these individuals are, are a group of nomadic, second-generation slaves, and they've been told about a land. They've been told about a land that's going to be theirs one day, and they've believed this promise for, for generations. And God has promised them, even, even to their great-great-great-granddaddy Abram, in Genesis 12, verse 7, to your seed I will give this land. There's going to be a land coming to you, Israel. And as these verses we read are going to read this morning and study this morning, their fulfillment of that ancient prophecy, of that, of that ancient promise that they were told. Uh, and you can imagine the anticipation, the excitement as they gathered around as families and clans and tribes. And they heard Joshua say, to you, you get this allotment. To you, you get this portion of the land. To you, this is your inheritance. There was an incredible amount of excitement for them. And so we, 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 we try as best we can not to be disconnected from that as we study the text of Scripture. And so in chapters 13 and 14, we're studying two chapters this morning, two main things, one in each chapter. We see the faithfulness of God in chapter 13, and then in 14, almost a mirror image of it, we see a model for a faithful man or woman, a model of, of, of our faithfulness, for our faithfulness. So the first four points, almost like two sermons in one today, the first four points will deal with God's faithfulness. The last four will deal with Caleb's faithfulness. And you say, whew, an eight-point sermon. Man, we're in trouble. Some of you just heard eight-point, and you deer hunters are like, eight-point. <laughs> Number one, God is strong enough to fulfill his promise. God is strong enough to fulfill his promise. Look at the first seven verses. Not going to spend a lot of time here because this was our text last week. We were looking at the tribes east of the Jordan in chapter 12. And so we dealt with this last week. We're going to, we're going to hit it pretty quickly this week. Look at verse one. 
Now Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and there remains yet very much land to possess. And this is the land that remains. All the region of the Philistines, and then you see this long description of this land that remains unconquered. Skip down to the end of verse 6. I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel. Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance, as I've commanded you. Now therefore, divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Note a couple things here as we uh, notice this first part of chapter 13. First, Joshua's advanced in years. And in contrast to that, Yahweh's strength is unfailing. So we're given this picture of Joshua, and in contrast to it, we see the strength of Yahweh. In chapter 1, if you can go that far back in your memory to our study of Joshua. Uh, in chapter 1 of Joshua, God makes a promise in the face of Moses' death. Right, Moses has died. Here, God affirms that promise in the face of Joshua's age. Joshua's not dead, but he is of such age that he'll no longer be going out and coming in with Israel before their army. Uh, He's about to retire as their general, as their commander. But you can be sure that, in contrast to, to Joshua's age and retirement, Yahweh will never take a break. Yahweh will not retire. He will not grow weak or weary. He will not fail. That he will assure this promise to them, just as he did in the first chapter. He'll assure it here. That's what you see when you take verse 1 and and verse 6 and sort of put them together, right? That's the the two summary statements that God is making in all of this description of the land. Look at verse 1, if you still have your Bibles open. You were old and advanced in years, and there remains very much land to possess. Now put the end of verse 6 with it. And I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel. Joshua, there's still work to do. And you're getting older, and I know you can't still go out and battle and fight like you used to could, but I'm strong enough to be able to do that. I'm still Yahweh, I'm still in charge, I'm still powerful, and I can fulfill everything that I've promised, even in your weakness. Second thing to note here in this first part of chapter 13, Joshua has one more task. He has one more task, and that task will prod Israel to faith and obedience. So as we've watched in Joshua week after week, he's led Israel to victory, military victory. He's he's led them to see the promises of God fulfilled, and he's entered, uh, endeared himself to them uh, in such a way that that Joshua chapter 3 verse 7 has been fulfilled. So Matt, what is Joshua chapter 3 verse 7? Joshua 3, verse 7, God told Joshua as a way to encourage him, give him confidence, that he would be exalted in the sight of all of Israel. Now that's an outcome that is pretty steep considering that he's following the legendary leader Moses, right? Moses has died. God tells him, Joshua, you too will be exalted in the sight of all Israel. And at this point in Joshua, Joshua 13, it's happened. Joshua's there. He's led them week after week in battle and and, and brought them to victory week after week as their leader, as their general. And in doing that, he's in the sight of all of Israel as this man who has has been victorious and led by God and has been a faithful leader under God. And so in the perfect wisdom of God and in the way that God is working all these things for Israel, this method is also how they'll secure the unconquered areas, right? That, that, that Joshua has been exalted in the sight of all Israel, and God will use this to divide the land, right? If, if you look at a map uh, of, of these unconquered areas and you read off Joshua 13 in these places while looking at a map, um, you'll see that, that chapter 13, verses 2b, the end of verse 2, and the beginning of verse 6, all of that section where it's a, a description of the land, what, what it really is is a, is a border, 
It's the fringes of the promised land. It's the outlying areas, the, the farthest areas from the center that's been unconquered, that still has people living in them that are not God's people. And so if you look at the map of that, you, you, you can again imagine how, as, as in God's wisdom, he's already told uh, Joshua here, you divide the land, you give the allotment, you break these, the land up into its portions and give it to the people. And in doing that, it'll be successful. We'll, you will be successful in conquering the unconquered places, which makes sense, right? You, you put a people there, you tell them this is their land, God's given it to them, and you watch how they fight for it. You watch how they, they fight to, to keep and secure what God has given them. And push those peoples out that are there that God says he's bringing his judgment against. It's a principle in it for us. There's a principle here that when you, you know you have something to be prized and that something is within your grasp and it will be indisputably yours when it's secured, there's motivation there to press on and make sure it's yours. And that motivation is huge, right? I'll give you a, a spiritual analogy in the New Testament. There's this biblical theological principle that we see carried over in the New Testament. And, and we see it here with Israel and land and, and physical enemies. You see it in the New Testament with our spiritual lives. Paul in Philippians chapter 3. Uh, Paul in Philippians chapter 3 verse 10. He says this. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on, Paul says, to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. What is Paul saying? He's, Christ has made us his own. That action has taken place and Christ has accomplished our salvation. And that's motivating Paul to obedience and striving in holiness. That's why he continues in Philippians. Brothers, I do not consider I've, uh, that I've made my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is what Paul's saying, church. We must believe this, that the promised blessings of the gospel are ours now. They're truly ours. They can't be taken from us. They are ours, but only in a measure. And one day, they'll be increasingly ours as we're sanctified and made to know Christ more and more. They'll be increasingly ours until they're fully ours when we see Christ face to face. This is what Paul's getting at. Friends, that changes your perspective on how you live in the here and now. When you believe everything that the gospel promised is mine, but I'm only realizing part of it until that day when I see Christ face to face and the full reward is given to me in Christ. And that idea, that understanding motivates us to faith and action. That's what Joshua's saying here. That's what the book of Joshua reminds us of. Think of what God's promised and go for it. Number two, God is good enough. So we saw first that he's strong enough to keep his promises. The second point, he's good enough to give us warnings in the midst of his promises. He's good enough to give us warnings in the midst of his promises. Look at verses 8 through 13. For the sake of time, we're not reading all of 8 through 13, but what it is is a general description of the boundaries of the land that Israel possessed east of the Jordan. So you've seen that the areas that they've not conquered, that are unconquered. Now he's going to give us in 8 through 13 a description of the land east of the Jordan. Remember, that was chapter 12 as well, that Israel has possessed. Look at verse 13, though. We're not going to read all of that text of Scripture, but look at verse 13. It says this, And yet the people of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites and the Machthites and Gesher and Machth dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. And this is the first statement of this kind that we see in Joshua. 
We see similar statements like it in chapters 15 through 17. We'll see statements like it even into the book of Judges. But what it is, it's the beginning clues or hints that Israel has failed at not being completely obedient to God. There are still people living in their midst that are pagan idolaters. And they're not completely obedient in this, in, this, in this command of God. Now, in the conquest, they were obedient. They did what God told them. They went in and conquered the peoples that God directed them towards. That's why God's blessing them here with land. He's giving them what he promised in the land. But these verses show they didn't finish the task. There's idolatry, even in tiny portions, remaining in Israel. And that will eventually lead Israel back into slavery, back into being a people with no land, back into exile. And so it should serve as a lesson to us. This text should remind us as the people of God today that incomplete obedience, listen closely, incomplete obedience seldom brings an immediate crisis, right? If you would have told these guys the rest of the story here, right, like the the rest of the story, that the consequences of allowing these two groups, these two little small groups on the fringes to remain in the land with their idol worship, if you'd have told them, hey, one day your sons and daughters are going to be idol, uh, idol worshipers, they're going to be led into slavery, they're going to be led into exile, and they're going to lose the land. You think they would have done something about it? You think they would have let apathy win here? No. They would have immediately been moved to action and done what God told them to do. And it's the same in our lives. We can often prove faithful in the great crisis of faith, right? In the great crisis of our lives, we can prove faithful, but we lack the, the tenacity in the day-to-day obedience, Right? We, we, can, we can remain steadfast in severe storms when everybody's watching and, and what are they going to do when they, when they get this diagnosis or they lose this person in their family. What are they gonna, but we lack the endurance when things are normal. Or, or we can even welcome the heaviest persecution for our faith. You think of the, the, the ones that go viral, right, in, in our own news channels and Christians being persecuted. We can stand in those moments and maybe even welcome those times. And we should for the name of Christ. But then we, then, we, then we fail to, to, to fulfill the, the patient, everyday plotting that's required for the life of the believer when things are just normal, mundane, every day. Here in Joshua, God is good and gracious to remind us, to give us a warning here uh, to, to live in full obedience uh, by the power of his spirit. Even when things don't look connected, right, to our spiritual lives. Number three, God is kind enough to encourage us as we journey toward his promises. God is kind enough to encourage us as we journey toward his promises. This is 8 through 33. This is the remainder of the chapter. And so uh, there's a repeated encouragement here that you may have missed as you're even looking at it now at the text. If you read before coming this morning uh, in worship prep, uh, there's an encouragement here that you may have not picked up on. 8 through 13, as I've already mentioned, is a general description of the boundaries east of the, east of the Jordan. So those two and a half tribes that are living east of the Jordan, are, uh, their boundaries are described in 8 through 13. The rest of the chapter, 14 through 33, is, it boils down to the specifics. Like what did God give to the Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh? Like what were their exact uh, portions of the promise? Now we're not going to read it all for the sake of time, but I want to give you the summary version. Reuben... It gets the southernmost part of the, of, the, of the land east of the Jordan. That's from the river Arnon all the way up to Heshbon. Following them, Gad gets from Heshbon all the way up to Mahan Aim. It's a small sliver that goes up to the Sea of Galilee. And then the half-tribe of Manasseh gets from uh, Mahan Aim all the way up through Bashan. So that's kind of the picture of the east of the Jordan. It might mean nothing to you. And so you read that in the text and 
I simplified it a good bit for you, but if you read it in the text, you may just go and scratch your head and think, man, this is a bunch of lakes and rivers and valleys and plains and a bunch of small towns, and it just seems kind of all jumbled in there, in there together, right? Sort of like you get driving directions from somebody out in the country. They're like, well, you go down there, pass that white oak tree, you take a left at the rock, go past the two houses on your right. My sister and my cousin lived on the left, and my house is the next one on the left. What? <laughs> well, I didn't catch any of that. That's kind of how you feel when you read Joshua 13. It's just like all these places and what does this mean and how is this important and what is God teaching me in this? However, in the midst of all of those landmarks and descriptions of territories, don't miss the encouragement that God gives Israel. And he does it by mentioning their previous victories over Sion, Og, and Balaam. We saw this last week in chapter 12 as well. Look, look with me if you got your Bibles open to, to verse 10. He mentions all the cities of Sion. You get to verse 12, he mentions all the kingdom of Og. You get to verse 21, he mentions uh, all the cities of the tableland, all the kingdom of Sion and Og, the Amorites who reigned in Heshbon, whom Moses defeated. You get to verse 22, it says, Balaam also, son of Baor, the one who practiced divination, was killed with a sword by the people of Israel among the rest of their slain. So in the middle of this geography lesson that, that God gives us in Scripture, he says, remember what I've done for you. Be encouraged, Israel. Look back at what I've done. Remember that whooping that I put on Sion and Og and that crazy wizard named Balaam. Remember all of that. I did it. I did it for you. This is, this is the way I've been protecting you and, and preserving you as my people. And this was, a, this was a, a, a thing that God did to remind them, even in Scripture, to remind them of his goodness, to encourage them in, in the victory so far. This was a primary application of last week's text. Church, that as we watch those videos, the, the, the testimonies that we heard of, of all the ways that the Lord worked in our year last year, small things, big things, things that seemed overwhelming, things that were overwhelming, watching God work in each and every one of them and, and, and then using them as a time to worship, to praise the Lord for the blessings that he's bestowed upon us as a church family. Certainly we should do that and be encouraged. It was so important for Israel this, this discipline of, of grace that they would remember the Lord's blessings that we've now seen in chapter 12 and 13. But you fast forward all the way to the Psalms, right? To the book of, of, the, of the Psalms, and King David is actually still singing about it, right? You can write this down and look at it this afternoon. Psalm 135, Psalm 136. David's just praising the Lord. He's singing to the Lord a song. He's writing psalms unto the Lord. And then he breaks out into a freestyle about Sion and Og. That's a part of his worship. Pray that we would be like that. Whether you write songs to the Lord or journal to the Lord or, or pray to the Lord and he re reminds you and you recall things that the Lord's done for you, that you would be encouraged by that. That he's not left you. He's not abandoned you. Remember and be encouraged. Number four, God is glorious enough to be our true inheritance. God is glorious enough to be our true inheritance. You see this in verses 14 and 33. It's, it's the last thing that I'll point out to us in, in chapter 13. And Joshua is pointing Israel to their true inheritance. He does this by mentioning two notes about the tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi were the priests. And unlike the other tribes, they didn't receive an inheritance of land from the Lord. Look at verse 14. And the tribe of Levi alone, Moses gave no inheritance. The offerings by fire to the Lord, uh, God of Israel, are their inheritance, as he said to them. So Israel doesn't get any land. They get food and gift offerings as the people of God come to worship God. God provides for the Levites through the faithfulness of his people. 
Don't miss this, though. Verse 33, you have that same note, that same note that, that they didn't receive a, an allotment of land, but there's an added statement. Don't miss the added statement in verse 33. Look at, look at it with me. But to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. Here it is. Here's the added statement. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance, just as he said to them. The Levites get God as their inheritance. That's, that's the whole entire point. From the very beginning, that was the point. That God was making himself a people. Even back to Abram in the land of Ur, God was calling him out so that he could bestow his love upon a group of people, that they would be his sons and daughters, and he would be their father. That was the whole point from the beginning. And any believing Israel, no, Israelite could come to adopt this perspective, realizing that above all else, Yahweh himself was their inheritance. He was their promise. He was their portion. Yahweh's enough. He was all that was ever needed anyways. Now, this didn't mean that the truly spiritual uh, man or woman in Israel would see their gift of land as junk, right? Well, that's just junk. I don't need that old land. I got God. No. Faith always sees the land as, uh, as, a God, as Yahweh's gift. But healthy and grateful faith sees beyond the inheritance to the one who granted the inheritance, right? Faithful uh, Israelites would, would not prize Yahweh's gifts above Yahweh himself. That's why you get to Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations chapter 3 verse 24. It says, the Lord is my portion. You're talking about portions of land and allotments of land. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Even if the land's taken from us, even if we lose it, even if God decides to give it to somebody else, Yahweh is our portion. Church family, that's why we can sing even now, even today, blessed be your name. You give and take away. Whatever comes, if the sun's shining down on me, or if awful, everything awful in the world comes against me, I can still say, blessed be your name. This was the song of Job in the Old Testament. So question for us, church, in application here, as we seek to apply this idea of, of God being their true inheritance, their true portion, can you be satisfied, be content, fully content in God, even if God took everything from you but himself? That's a weighty question, but I think we should ponder the answer to it. Could you be completely satisfied if God took from you everything but himself? And if your answer to that question is not yes, then whatever the non-negotiable thing is in your life, it's an idol. It's something that you've said, God, I'm, I'm satisfied in you, but I also need this. And whatever that thing is, whatever that this is for you, is keeping you from being fully and completely satisfied, content in Christ. In Christ alone. It's one of the songs we sing at this church. Is Christ enough? That's the question. He is our portion forever, the text says. Regardless of what comes, He is our promise. He's our inheritance. And because He's faithful, we can be faithful. And I think that's incredible that, that in the, the layout of Joshua, in, in the book of Joshua, we have chapter 13 that's just full of clues, hints, fingers pointing towards God's faithfulness. And then immediately following it, it's almost like a mirror image, we get a model for what it looks like for us to be faithful. So God's faithful, and here's what it looks like when we're faithful. I already mentioned to you that there are some unconquered land on the fringes of the promised land. And God's plan for dealing with those areas was to go ahead and give the allotments to the tribes. Tribes, you move into the land, and as you move into the land, you expand and, and you own what I've told you is yours. 
So that's sort of the strategy. This would motivate them to provide the manpower and the, the effort. Their presence there would give them the ability to, uh, to see everything that God has promised come to pass. I remember, I know that it's hard to remember, but all the way back in point number one this morning, uh, we saw that, that reality, that God was strong enough to deliver, to give them everything he'd said. And he was doing this by giving them the allotments of the land. Well, chapter 14 is sort of the for example you ever been reading a book and the writer says in parentheses, uh, for example, right? So like Matt loves food, for example. Matt loves cheeseburgers and wings and fried pickles, for example. Well, here's your for example. Chapter 14 is, is this is what God said would happen. As you give the land to the peoples, they'll expand, they'll own it, for example. Look at Caleb. So moving into chapter 14, you see an example, our fifth point, an example of devoted faith. An example of devoted faith. Look at verse 6. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal. And Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, and Kadesh Barnea concerning you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me uh, made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. Caleb speaks up. He goes to Joshua. He speaks up and he reminds Joshua of the episode from Numbers chapter 13 and 14. You remember it's a pretty familiar text to us. When Moses sends out spies into, uh, the, to investigate the land from Kadesh Barnea. And Joshua and Caleb were two of them. And the majority of the spies, the other ten, came back and they gave a negative report. They said, this land is just too big. It, it has cities with these high fortified walls. The, the people are giants and we just can't beat them. I mean, they're bruisers. It would be like a junior high football team playing the Carolina Panthers. And, well, that's probably not the best illustration this year. Uh, but you get the idea. You know what I'm saying? It's impossible. They're not going to win. We're, we're going to be defeated and, and we just can't do it. However, Caleb reminds Joshua, we came back and we had the gall not to go with the flow. We had confidence in God. We wholly trusted the Lord God. And he reminds Joshua of of this faithfulness. Look at verse 8. He says, yet I, and this is emphatic in the Hebrew in the language it was written in, yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. Verse 9 again, he reminds him of what Moses said. Moses said, you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And then in verse 14, he mentions it again. Because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Three times in this text, we're shown that Caleb wholly, completely followed the Lord. That's a devoted faith. That's a devoted faith. He uh, had the faith to give the minority report even when it cost him and almost cost him his life. Look at Numbers chapter 14. There was a lot to risk there. He says, we can take it. We can take this land. Yahweh is with us. Stop fearing those oversized giants on the other side of the river. We can do this. God is behind us. He's leading us. He's the one going before us, and he's all around us, and they won't touch us. You know, the Christian teenager understands this sort of devoted faith, right? When he or she is, is in school and going against the flow, and, and to be in junior high or high school and known as the goody two-shoes because they, they stand upon biblical convictions, Despite what peer pressure may say or, or do. The, the, the devoted uh, Christian businessman understands this sort of devoted faith when he'll take considerable loss financially or just in the company because he, he's informed by biblical convictions and he won't, he won't fudge on them. He won't back down off them because he knows what God said in his word. What about us, church family? Will we be devoted this year? In 2019, will we take a stand on what God has said even if it costs us? 
Number six, in Caleb we see an example of an anchored faith. An example of anchored faith. Ever been in the ocean? Maybe playing at the beach, take a family vacation, and you're having a good time. Maybe you're out riding your boogie board or floating on a raft, getting your suntan on, and then you look up and you're nowhere near your umbrella or your lawn chair. You've drifted, right? That happened to me as a kid. I was scared to death. I thought mom and dad had packed up and left. <laughs> like, who does that? Who leaves their kid at the beach without telling them they're leaving? Like, I may still have a complex about it. I'm not sure. But I learned that, uh, that, that waves will do that to you. They'll slowly but surely pull you down the beach because of the way that the waves are coming in. And, and you'll lose sight of where you started out if you're not paying attention. Even, even though that happens... The largest of ships, barges, uh, boats so big you could literally put a house on them if they put an anchor down. If they drop an anchor, they can be unmoved by those waves, untouched by them. And in this text, we see Caleb's anchor for faith uh, in this passage. Look at at it with me in verse 9. Listen closely as I read for the thing Caleb keeps coming back to over and over again. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot is trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now behold, I am this day 85 years old. I'm still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then, for uh, war and for going and for coming. So now give me this hill country on which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. Did you see it? Did you hear it as we read? Did you hear the thing that he's anchoring his faith into? Look at it, verse 6. I'll point it out to you. He says he bases his request, this request that he's fixing to make in verse 12, he bases it on, verse 6, you know what the Lord said to Moses. And he keeps coming back to it. Look at verse 10. The first, first part of verse 10. The Lord has kept me alive just as he said. End of verse 10. Since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses. Verse 12, the first part. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. And then the end of verse 12. Maybe that the, it may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. You ever heard of a broken record that just kind of keeps repeating the same thing? Like, man, I wish that thing would jump over to the next hearing part of the song. This is a great record to have broken. He just keeps hammering this point. Four times in two verses, his request is for nothing more than what has come from the mouth of God. God spoke it. He said it. You remember what he said to Moses. You remember what he said before us, that this land would be our land. He's banking everything on his anchor, which is the word of God which is surely going to come to pass. He believes it. And true faith always functions in this way. It pleads God's promises. True faith anchors itself in the word of God. Christ being our sure and steady anchor. I love that Michael sang that song this morning. And we didn't talk about that. I didn't know he was singing that song this morning. But it fits incredibly with our text. He is our sure and steady anchor that will not fail. There's no other foundation on this planet that you can bank everything else on. Your experiences, nope, they'll change. Your, your gut instincts, nope, they'll change. Your emotions, those surely change. The only thing that we can bank everything on is God's unchanging word and the word which is Christ. He never changes. You can bank your life on it. And Caleb's faith was biblical faith because it's not just belief. It didn't just believe that, but that belief led to action. 
And here's where we can easily go wrong too, church. We can base our faith on our, our feelings or our circumstances. Sometimes we can even base our faith on our faith, right? Like this is so silly, but we do this. Like if I believe enough, if I have a big enough faith, then I can weather any storm, right? Like we have to pump up faith or something like it's, you know, a sports team at a pep rally. If I pump up my faith, I can take this thing. No, we forget that great faith is not necessary. It's genuine faith that's necessary. Faith the size of a mustard seed, if it's in the object who is God, who is Christ. Say it another way. We don't need great faith in God. We need faith in a great God. That's what Caleb's demonstrating here. God has said it. He's spoken. It'll come to pass. Give me that land. He's showing us that biblical model of taking the promises of God, believing them, genuinely believing them, and then turning them into prayers where we plead them back to God. God, you have said I'm going to go out on faith here because you have said it. Everything I'm believing now is based on your word, what you have spoken to me in your holy book. Number seven, we see an example of faith with proper perspective. Faith with proper perspective. Look at verses 10 and 11. Uh, Verse 10, and now behold, the Lord has kept me alive just as he said. These 45 years since uh, the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness... And now behold, I am this day 85 years old. I am as strong today as the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then for war, for going, and for coming. This is what he's saying. Faith with the proper perspective remembers all that God has done, and that memory leads to gratitude. Caleb's building to his punchline here. He hasn't gotten to it yet. The punchline is verse 12. He's going to make a request in verse 12. But before he gets gets there, he shows Joshua that he remembers the faithfulness of God to preserve his life. He's kept him alive these last 45 years, Caleb says. And that's no small task, right? Caleb has witnessed his entire generation die in the wilderness as a result of God's punishment. Every person that was of his generation has passed away. On top of that... His son's generation, the generation after him, many of them have died in military battles. I mean, I think we missed this because we, we, went, we studied through it in like you know, three or four weeks. This took seven or eight years for them. Many people died. And Caleb remembers. I'm an elderly man now. And it's not just that I'm an elderly man. I, I recognize that God not only kept me alive, he's kept me alive with stamina and with strength. I could do it again. God could lead us right through the same conquest and I could do it again because I'm just as strong now as I was then by God's power. That's proper perspective. That's the perspective we're called to have every day, that we would see the past and we would recognize God's goodness there in the past and we would drag those truths into the present, believing that was God working and watch how God uses those truths to make us go forward in the future. That's the way that biblical faith works in our lives. That's the reality that each and every one of us have. So we look back on the past and what God's done. He's the one that's sovereignly in control. He's the one that was working all these things. I'm not strong now because I've been eating my Wheaties and working out every day. I'm strong now because God has done it. He's preserved my life. Number eight, we see an example of faith with fervor. An example of faith with fervor. Look at verses 12 through 15. And so now, based upon all of that, based upon God's promise, his, his anchor being in the word of God, based upon his perspective that God's been doing all of this, he's the mover, he's the worker that's been doing all of this and preserving my life, my strength, my stamina. Now, verse 12, this is good. Watch this. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how there were Anakim there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. 
Then Joshua blessed him and gave uh, Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Now the name of Hebron formerly was uh, Kiriath Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim, was the greatest man among the Anakim, and the land had rest from war. Watching football with some guys the other day. And the commercial came on for Clint Eastwood's new movie, The Mule. I don't know if any of you have seen that, that commercial. The comment was made, though, as we saw the commercial, it seems like the older that, that Clint Eastwood gets, the badder he gets. Well, that's proper grammar. The badder he gets. The older he, It's like 88-year-old Clint Eastwood makes Dirty Harry look like he belongs on Sesame Street or something. I mean, he's just, he's just the older he gets, the tougher he gets, the meaner he gets. You don't want to cross him. And it's sort of the sense we get here with Caleb as well in the book of Joshua. I mean, there's an energy and there's a fervor to his faith in these last verses. You hear it in his request in verse 12. Give me my mountain. Give me my mountain. This, you, you wonder if you read this text, an 85-year-old man demanding his inheritance in this way, what gives him such energy and fire in his bones at such an older age? Well, one, he's already shown us that he believes the word of God. He trusts the word of God. Everything here is contingent upon God doing what he's already said he's going to do. I believe that. God said it. I see it. Now give me my mountain. It's going to come to pass because God's already said it. But there's another fact working underneath all of these these verses uh, that shoot a shot of adrenaline into Caleb's veins. You see it here in the text if you read what he's talking about as he asks for the mountain. And it's the fact that this is going to be a difficult task. This is no easy task at 85 years old. This isn't an easy task for someone in their 20s, in their prime. And it's as if Joshua, or Caleb's saying to Joshua, Hey, pal, you remember what caused those cowards not to believe God's promises about conquering the land. You remember what led us to 40 years of wilderness wandering. You remember all that whimpering about large fortified cities. You remember all that whining about giants, the Anakim, how they all said we're not able to do it. Well, that's exactly where I want my inheritance to be. So give me my mountain. Watch God do it. Anakim and all. Give me my mountain and watch God do it. There's no vain cockiness here. There's no self-confidence that's fueling him here. It's complete confidence in what God has said and the evidence of what God has said in his own life. That's what he's trusting in. And it's precisely what caused the rest of Israel to shrink back in fear that's now emboldening Caleb to forge forward in courage. They don't want the Anakim. I'll take the Anakim because God's already said he's going to do it. What an incredible perspective. What a, what a faith filled with fervor. If we would believe like that. God's already said it. Let come what may. And I love that he says, look at, look at verse, uh, verse 12. He says this, It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. It may be. It almost sounds like for a moment that might be doubt, right? I don't think so. I think Caleb is, is acknowledging the reality here that maybe it'll be with my kids. Maybe I will die in this battle, but God's going to do it. And I'm not going to box God in and say that he has to do it with me. I trust God that this is our land and that he's going to take care of the Anakim. And if he wants to use me, let's go. And if he wants to use my kids, okay, let's just do this. This is in God's hand. He's sovereign and in control. I place it in his hands because it's all up to him anyways. What an incredible perspective to have there. So what about you, friend? Will Caleb be an example for you in faith today that that next week, whatever next week holds or next month or 2019, no matter how uh, circumstances come into your life, will will God's word here through Caleb spur you on to trust him in all circumstances? 
To have a faith that's, that's full of fervor? Because here's the reality. God, God knows that we're not going to do it. He knows that we're not going to do it perfectly. That's why he sent Christ. And so more than Caleb as an example, you have the cross as your witness, as, as the testimony to the fact that we would never do it perfectly, but Christ died on our behalf. Friends, let that encourage you, embolden you in your faith to step out and trust him in whatever he's calling you to. Whatever that thing is that makes your heart rate fast, right? You know he's put it on your heart. You know he's called you to it. And every time you think about it, your heart rate goes up because you know that he's done it. Whatever that thing is, let God's word encourage you to step out in faith and do it. As the object of our faith, he will not let us down. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that in it, even in tricky texts where we have a lot of, of geography and, and landmarks, my God, your word is good and it teaches us. And there's truth there for us that as your children gives us courage, calls us to, act, to action, reminds us of our belief. And so, God, I pray that all of those things are happening in the heart of every person here that's a child of God. And God, if there's someone here that doesn't know you, they've never placed their trust in you, I pray today would be a day of salvation, that they would see this example from Scripture and know it would be a testimony to the fact that we can't be perfect. That we won't, we won't strive and be, and be completely obedient, that we'll fail and we'll make mistakes, and that's why you sent Christ. That Christ bore the wrath that we deserve. That he suffered penalty so that we didn't have to. God, I pray today would be the day of salvation for any that do not know you. God, help us to respond to this text and wherever we're at, that we would be people of faith, ready to start 2019, boldly, full of fervor, anchored in the truth that is Christ. We'll give you this time. Work in our hearts. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. If you would stand, we'll sing in response to the word. If you're here this morning, you've never trusted Christ, I'm available. I'd love to talk to you about that. Believer, if you're here this morning, do business with God and invite him. Do that. Invite him to be very specific in what he's calling you to this year, and then you be obedient. You respond with a yes.